Thank you all. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And while you're turning there, let me just confirm from what Jeff said. This church has been a great blessing to our family, to our children, and so it is just a great honor to be here this morning to open the word with you. Romans chapter 12. We are going to read verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let us pray. Gracious God, we are so grateful that you have condescended to us to give us your word. It is true, it is certain, it is eternal, and Father, by your spirit, it has the power to transform us into the image of Christ. So we pray now, Father, that your word would go forth, Father, by the power of your spirit, not by the power of man. We ask, Father, that in these words, that we would be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. In 2014, a Salvadoran fisherman was found barely alive, washed ashore on the Marshall Islands. Now, 14 months earlier, his fishing boat had nearly capsized in a terrible storm, and for over a year, he drifted almost 6,000 miles from South America to the Marshall Islands, surviving on nothing more than fish and birds and collecting rainwater. He had no motor, no oars, and no sail, and no rudder. And so his route was determined only by the providence of wind and water currents. He was set adrift in an ocean with no control over his course or destination. Now this harrowing tale of survival provides a fitting opening illustration to the frequent warnings that we find in Scripture regarding our own Christian walk. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul, no stranger to peril at sea, uses nautical terms to encourage the church to mature in their faith so that they can avoid being tossed about by the waves or carried away by every wind of doctrine. Now, using a similar pattern in these opening verses of Romans chapter 12, Paul draws a contrast for us on one hand by positively telling us what the appropriate response is to our justification but while also negatively warning us, like he did with the Ephesian church, to avoid the shaping of our lives by cultural wind and current. As we look at these first two verses this morning of Romans chapter 12, we have the answer to the question, what is the Christian's response to justification? But we also see how do we avoid simply drifting along through our Christian walk, making a shipwreck of our faith. This morning, as we look at this text, we're going to see three things in these opening verses of chapter 12. Number one, the priority of sacrificial living. Number two, the prohibition of inaction. And finally, number three, the prescription for transformation. Now, first, since we are skipping ahead to the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Romans, we need to spend a few minutes making some observations that will help us better appreciate the context. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul spends the majority of his letter focused on Christian doctrine. We see the universality of sin. We have justification by faith. We see sanctification rooted in our union with Christ, and we see election and true Israel. 
But in chapter 12, Paul makes a decisive turn from doctrine to application. And we, the shift, one clue that we have in that shift from doctrine to application is the word, therefore. If you look at there, when you see that word, therefore, if you are into marking your Bibles, circle it and put an arrow pointing back toward the previous verses. Because the therefore means, because of all that, then this. It's a clue that Paul is shifting from doctrine to application. And we can articulate that shift several ways. Like I said, doctrine to application. We can say he moves from orthodoxy, which is right belief, to orthopraxy, which is right practice. Or for my grammar people, an indicative, which is a statement of fact, to imperative, which is a call to action. Now what Paul is saying is in light of this truth, how shall we now live? To coin the Francis Schaeffer term. To put it practically, ethics, how we live, flows from doctrine, what we believe. So it matters what we believe because it matters how we live. 1 Corinthians 13. Knowledge, Paul says, knowledge without love is nothing. In other words, doctrine is not simply taught for the sake of taking in more information, but to drive action. Knowledge drives action. Now, Paul also shows us this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he defends the resurrection. He says, if Christ is not raised from the dead incorrect knowledge, then it doesn't matter how you live. Incorrect action. Paul begins this letter to the Romans in Romans 1 by reminding them that the world has, been, has suppressed the truth in unrighteousness, incorrect knowledge, and therefore are given over to sinful desires and actions. Incorrect action. So how is the Christian to live in light of his justification? Well, second, since we are in these first two verses, Paul is speaking about sanctification. He's talked about what justification is. And again, since we're jumping in the middle, Westminster Shorter Catechism question 35 is helpful here. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. I ask this question to a lot of high school students. Do you participate in your sanctification? And here's the answer I usually get. Maybe. What answer are you looking for? It's a little bit of a yes and no. So you do not participate in your justification. It is an act of God whereby he declares you righteous based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But we do participate in our sanctification. It is a work of God in us. So Paul is telling us here that pursuing righteousness, which involves a change in our thinking and a change in our behavior, is the proper response of the Christian. It is the fruit of justification. Now, sanctification, again, is the process by which God's people, by God's power, are being transformed into the image of Christ. And the order is so important. Sanctification flows from justification. The scriptures tell us over and over, we cannot make ourselves perfect in order for God to be pleased with us. Rather, in justification, we have been declared righteous in Christ so that in sanctification, God begins to make us what he has declared us to be. And that manifests itself in the obedience to his law, in the pursuit of righteousness, and in a growing hatred of our sin. 
Sanctification is a work in the life of the Christian that transforms us to live according to God's word. Listen to Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Philippians 2.13. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Did you notice the action verbs there? Do and will and act. The roots of justification, which we don't plant, produces the fruit of sanctification, which reveals an inward and outward change in the life of the believer. Again, we are not making down payments on our justification. We have been declared righteous by God. We are not holding our justification in place. Now, if we, understand, if we misunderstand this, then we will have possibly the right actions for the wrong motivation. So Paul is talking here in these first two verses about our sanctification. Now, finally, there's one more thing that we need to see since we're only looking at these two verses this morning. There is a vertical and horizontal dimension in this opening section of chapter 12 and then continuing through the end of the chapter in, first, in, in chapter 15. The first thing that Paul is concerned about in our Christian walk is our relationship to God, our response to God. From verse 3 and forward, then, Paul begins to talk about our horizontal relationships to one another, to the body of Christ, to outsiders, to governing authorities. But we must recognize that our relationship to God, our vertical relationship, is paramount. Christians, we must not place any earthly relationship, even our closest relationship, over the relationship with our God and Savior. And this is the biblical pattern that we see. The Ten Commandments start with God, the first table of the law. Have no other gods before me. Have no graven images. Do not take my name in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Those are vertical commands. They deal with how we relate to God. And then the horizontal commands flow from the vertical commands. How we treat our parents, just as Jeff talked about. How we treat our neighbors. How we respect those in authority over us. So the same pattern. When Jesus teaches us to pray, notice the order. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Vertically. We orient ourselves vertically to God. And then comes, give us this day our daily bread. So Paul is following the same pattern here in these first two verses. We must orient ourselves first to God and then to others. So to summarize, before we look at these verses, we have the application of Paul's doctrine, the, the sanctification, which is how we live in light of that, with the proper orientation, our relationship to God. So let's, with that backdrop, let's look at our first point, the priority of sacrificial living, the priority of sacrificial living. Verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, Paul is speaking here to people he loves. And what he's doing here is more than making mere suggestions. There's a strong word here, exhort or urge or appeal are all words that you may see in your translation. It is another indication along with the therefore that, pointed out, that we pointed out earlier that marks this transition in the direction of Paul's letter. This is the first time in Romans that he uses this word. Therefore, I urge you, or I exhort you. The word parakaleo means to come alongside. When we put that with brothers, 
which Paul uses hundreds of times in his letters, and we need to know he is not referring to some generic universal brotherhood of man. He is speaking to the body of Christ. It is a familial term. It is an intimate term. So Paul is putting his arm around his readers, as it were. Paul is not simply saying, you know, I know you didn't ask me, but let me just give you a piece of advice. You know, it's none of my business, but if I were you, I would do this, right? No, in fact, Paul is saying, brothers, my family, the people that I care deeply about, this is the way you need to live. This is what your life should look like. Because of the mercies of God that I've spent these last 11 chapters explaining to you, the only appropriate response is you place a priority in your life toward sacrificial living. You must live in light of what God has done for you, he says. Christians must live in light of their redemption. How do we do that? Well, first he says, present your bodies. Now, this is an active voice, which means it is continual action. When he says present your bodies, he does not mean that this is a one-time salvation event that Paul is speaking of here. This is not, I presented my body once when I prayed to receive Christ. I presented my body once when I walked down the aisle and prayed a prayer. He is saying sacrificial living is a way of life. This is how we live each day of our lives, presenting our bodies each morning as we wake up in the light of God's grace. I am yours. I give myself wholly to you for your purpose and for your glory. Now, the word bodies here, Paul uses bodies to refer to our whole being. John Calvin says it's not our skin and bones, but the totality of who we are. Present our bodies, he says, means all of us. Present everything that you are as a living sacrifice, Paul says. Now, of course, we recognize that language because it's Old Testament sacrificial language. Paul uses the Old Testament language as he alludes to the sacrificial system, the old system, the shadows in which an animal was killed, its blood was poured out, it was placed upon the altar as an act of worship or an act of atonement, but it was a type, it was a shadow, it pointed to the reality of the sacrifice of Christ, the perfect sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. But the point in that language is that the sacrifice was offered to God in its totality. It was not partial, and the giver did not lay a claim to it once it was offered. He gave up all rights and ownership of the sacrifice. He offered it to God. And Paul says here, as he applies the Old Testament shadows to the New Testament reality, this is a picture of how the Christian is supposed to live. As if we have no more claim on any area of our life. Paul often uses another metaphor in Scripture, a slave to Christ, a doulos. And we know in the first century, and in every century, slaves had no claim on their lives. They were at the full bidding of their masters. And so Paul is saying here, that is how we are to live in light of our new master, Jesus Christ. But the sacrifice, when Paul uses that sacrificial language Paul is talking about, is in light of the reality of the new covenant. Today, the thought of pouring out blood on an altar is revolting. Jesus Christ has poured out his blood once and for all. The perfect sacrifice, the shadows are gone. The reality is here. We don't bring animals to the altar anymore. 
Christ's blood is sufficient to cover our sins. We no longer need to keep bringing the blood of bulls and goats, as the author of Hebrews said. Instead, Paul says, you bring yourself to the altar. You offer yourself as a sacrifice, but not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. For Christ has purchased you. We do not belong to ourselves anymore. And he calls us to die to ourselves and offer to God everything that we are and everything that we have. That's what a living sacrifice looks like. The giving of ourselves to God, to his will, to his priorities, and for his glory. There is nothing we have, Christian, that does not belong to Jesus Christ. And Paul says, offer it all to him in the way that you live your life. Living sacrifice, die to self in whatever calling God has placed you in. Prioritize the glory of God in all of it. Now he continues, holy and acceptable. As this word holy means set apart for special use. It can mean sacred. It can mean separate, consecrated to God, which means for special use. The priority of sacrificial living compels us to live different lives than we used to live as unbelievers. It compels us to div, live different lives as than the world around us. And we can connect holy and acceptable also to our bodies. Paul does mean our entire being here, but it does mean physically as well. Paul, does, it, Paul is writing to a people living in and surrounded by a sensual, sexual, sinful culture that said, I can do whatever I want with my body. Oh, how relevant today. What we do with our physical bodies matters. We are not Gnostics. We are not waiting the redemption from our bodies, but of our bodies. When we read the Apostles' Creed this morning, we said that we believe in the resurrection of the body, not from the body. Our bodies will be redeemed. So as a redeemed people, we live differently, holistically differently. Christ did not come to simply save our souls. He came to save all of us, body and soul. So it matters in this life what we do with our bodies. It matters what we see with our eyes. It matters what we hear with our ears. The children's song, Be Careful Little Eyes What You See, is not just for children. The church is a consecrated, holy, set-apart people, and we should live like it. Finally, at the end of this verse, Paul says, this is your spiritual or logical worship. This can be better rendered reasonable or rational. In other words, in light of God's mercy, this is the only thing that makes sense. If you get the gospel, then your life should reflect it. The point Paul is making here is that how we live is an act of worship. Justifying faith produces real inward and outward righteousness. Justifying faith produces real obedience to God's word. Justifying faith produces a sacrificial love toward others. And justifying faith produces in us a hatred of our sin. The Christian's reasonable response is a wholehearted, dedicated commitment 
to holy living. So verse 1 summarized, in light of justification, Paul says, change the way you live. You're different. You should be. But next, he says, in our second point, the prohibition of inaction. The prohibition of inaction. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. In this verse, Paul says holy sacrificial living is the only reasonable response to God's... In the first verse, he says that sacrificial living is the only reasonable response to God's mercy. He said, well, we may ask, what does that look like practically? In verse 2 and continuing through the rest of the letter at the end of the Romans, he tells us. But he starts here with a negative. Here's what it doesn't look like, Christian. Another way to render this verse is, stop allowing yourself to be fashioned after the pattern of this world. Paul starts with a negative. Don't do this. Don't let yourself be conformed. The commands of God, the law of God, contains negatives. The presence of sin in this age requires negative commands. There is right and there is wrong. There is evil and there is good. Do this don't do that. That's how the commands of God are orchestrated because of sinful man. In his mercy, he tells us what to do and what not to do. So Paul says first, do not let yourself be conformed to this world. Now when he says world here, it means this present time or this present age. We must navigate the world we live in as redeemed Christians. And because there is sin in the world... Because there is hostility to God, because in Ephesians 6, as Paul says, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities, we must walk through this present age carefully, paying attention. When he says conformed, the word literally means fashioned after, or crafted into the image of, or better, I like, pressed into the mold of. Paul says, do not let the spirit of the age the culture around you, shape you into its image. Do not let the world shape you into what it looks like. Now, the other reason Paul starts with a negative here is because the only thing that conforming to this world requires is for the Christian to do nothing. It will happen. When our kids were little, we had Play-Doh, as most of you probably do, and you remember those little presses, and you would push a, you know, a big block of Play-Doh into this press, and, and then you would squeeze it, and whatever shape you had on the front of that, right, the Play-Doh would come out in that shape. Well, like a Play-Doh in a press, if we merely remain idle, the world will simply press us into its mold. And we will look exactly like the world. And Paul says here, don't let that happen. It's an admonition against something happening to you. The first thing we need to realize is that it is happening. Satan loves when we think that what we read and what we watch and what we listen to and who teaches us makes no difference at all in the transformation of our minds. Satan wants us to think that none of those things matter. But we need to remember this present age, that world, the world that we live in, it has a value system. And we see it all the time. It wants to tell us what is right and wrong. It wants to tell us what is true. And false. It wants to tell us what is beautiful. It wants to tell us what is important. 
It wants to tell us what marriage is. It wants to tell us what love is. It wants to tell us even today what male and female is. It wants us to live for self, live for pleasure, and the spirit of the age wants to deceive us into thinking that whatever we feel like doing is what is going to make us happy. Listen to, Paul, to Peter's warning against being led by our emotions. 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you. It's the same word that Paul uses when he says he opens his letter. Beloved, I urge you. As sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That's another word for emotions. Which wage war against your soul. Our feelings are not the measure of truth. The word of God is. But for the Christian bought with a price by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we do not belong to ourselves. We have been given the Holy Spirit to discern truth. And Paul says, be on guard, Christian, because the world is telling us the opposite of what the Word is telling us. What is right and wrong and true and beautiful and important. Part of the problem today in many churches is that they are being pressed into the mold of this world and they don't even know it. So be thankful, church, and pray for your elders as they guard the flock and as they protect the purity of the church. So where does this shaping take place? I think we know every day, everywhere around us. Education, music, literature, movies, television, social media. They exist to conform you to a certain way of thinking, to train your mind to shape you into its image. Now, let me be clear. In and of themselves, these things are not sinful. But the question that the Christian is required to ask is, are these things conforming us to the image of the world or transforming our mind to the will of God? There is no neutral ground. This is what we need to remember. We are either being pressed into the mold of the world or we, be, or we are being made into the image of Christ. As we talked about the catechism this morning with Jeff, young people, do you learn more about marriage and relationships from social media and movies or from the scriptures or from your parents or from godly influences in your life? Do we pattern the way that we talk and dress and spend our time after the world or after biblical patterns? Now, again, let me be clear. This is not a call to isolationism. This is not a call to legalism. It's a call to, of discernment. See, Paul is not interested here in mere aesthetic outward religion that we look the right way. Paul is interested in the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that has the power to turn lovers of sin into haters of sin. And that manifests itself in the pursuit of holiness in the life of the Christian. And that means saying yes to some things and no to other things. So Paul is saying, be alert. Recognize that it's happening and don't let that happen. In this world, yes, but not of this world. A fish swims its entire life in a salty ocean, but does not taste salty when you eat it. 1 John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Listen to Paul again in his letter to the Ephesians. Make a distinction between the world and the church. Ephesians 2.3. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, that's following our emotions, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, he says, like the rest of mankind. Paul says, that's what you used to be. That's how you used to think. That's the way dead sinners are right now who desperately need to hear the gospel. See, there's not some switch that gets flipped and all of a sudden you have a biblical worldview. Sanctification is our process by which we are continually changing our thinking. It is continually transforming our minds. And it means no to the way that we used to live. It means no to following the pattern of the world, to being pressed into the mold of the world. So Paul says, stop being conformed to the world negatively. The prohibition of inaction. But instead, and he turns it positively, our last point, the prescription for transformation. The prescription for transformation. Look at the last part of verse 2 again. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now these also, like the previous verses, are, are present tense, which means continual action. In other words, practically speaking, there is not one class that you will take, one sermon you will hear, or one verse that you will read that will complete the transformation and renewal of your mind. Like sacrificial living, it is a continual process until the day that the Lord calls us home. Now note the contrast here. This is where Paul makes a contrast. Not fashioned after, but transformed. Not molded into something, but changed into something else. Metamorpho. We don't need to be Greek scholars to know what that word means. Metamorphosis. We need to undergo a change, a radical change. We must be changed by the renewal of our mind. So Paul says, stop conforming, stop adapting, stop following, stop fitting in. That's conforming. Instead, be transformed, be altered, be changed, be converted. Be con being conformed, again, requires us to do nothing except to be carried along by cultural currents, like our fishermen lost at sea. But the prescription for transformation is active. It requires action on our part. Now, this is interesting. This, Paul writes this in the passive voice, which means transformation is taking place in your life, which he implies by the work of the Holy Spirit. But it is in the imperative mood, which means you must participate in it. So the work of God is that the Spirit is working in you, and that's going to manifest itself in you working that out. You must allow yourself to be transformed. Remember our action verses earlier, to will and to act and to do according to God's good purpose. Transformation and renewal requires us to think, to use our minds. It is intellectual. We have to get away from this idea that people are either spiritual or intellectual. One of my favorite things that R.C. Sproul used to say is the pathway to the heart is the mind. We have to think about these things. Those things like doctrine and theology and apologetics. Oh, I don't know about all that Bible stuff. I just love Jesus. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? If Christianity is not true, it's not important. If it is true, then it's of infinite importance. He says, but what it cannot be is moderately important. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy 
always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and respect. Being prepared implies what? That you've prepared, that there is some preparation that takes place. Making a defense implies having a plan. That's what a defense means. 2 Corinthians 10.5, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, the not, excuse me, the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to Christ. Knowledge of God, thought, which requires us to think. These verses are for every believer. We need to know what we believe. We need to know why we believe it. We need to be transforming our minds. We need to use it to learn to think critically, to filter everything that we take in through a biblical lens. To transform and renew our minds is the pursuit of holiness. The more we study the Bible, the more we know about God, the more our minds are transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more we begin to love God. It's easy to talk about the things that we love, is it not? You take any topic that you love and you can talk about it for hours. Brothers and sisters, the more we know about God, the more we begin to love the gospel. And the more we want to talk about it the more we want to spend time in it, the more we want to spend time with other believers that want to talk about it. As Paul said, the pathway to our heart is what warms, is done through the warming of our mind by the study of the Scripture. That is what transforms us. And we will find in our sanctification that our interests will change. We will find that we can say no to sins that we used to say yes to. We will find that we have less interest in worldly things. It is a cliche phrase that many Christians have said in the giving of their testimony. It's not the things I don't do anymore. It's the things I don't want to do anymore. My interests have changed. My loves, my loves have changed. That's sanctification. The great Scottish preacher Thomas Chalmers wrote about the expulsive power of a new affection. He's talking about the fighting of sin, that the only way that we will fight the, the sins that have clung onto us so hard is to push those out with a love of something greater, the expulsive power of a new affection. And the more we fill our minds with the things of God, the more we will find ourselves transformed by the Holy Spirit, the less the things of the world will have an appeal for us. So finally, let's look at the last part of Romans 12 too. We transform and renew our minds. Why? Let's put this all together. Do not let yourself be conformed, but instead renew and transform your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's how we know what God wants us to do. Here's how we know what is God honoring. Here's how we know what, how God wants us to live. In order to know the will of God, our conscience cannot be our only guide here. Yes, the Spirit prompts us, but we must rely on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to transform our minds so that we know what is pleasing to God. The will of God, which is good and acceptable and perfect. And where do we find the will of God? But in the Word of God. Now let's go back to our vertical and horizontal dimension. Children, remember our vertical and horizontal dynamic. The honor and obedience in our catechism question, that you give to your parents flows vertically from your obedience to God and your desire to please Him. 
husbands and wives, the honor and love that we show to our spouse flows from our vertical relationship to want to obey God, our desire to please God. So our vertical relationship must be oriented in order for our horizontal relationships to be ordered right. Not because we are trying to earn favor, but because we are responding to the mercy and grace of God. Our obedience is a response to the grace of God in our lives. John Murray says, the will of God is is the law of God, and the law of God is holy and just and good. The renewal of our minds by the word of God will change us into someone else. It will change us into a new person with new desires. So how do we apply this? How do we answer difficult questions? How do we make difficult decisions? Well, first we need to remember God speaks to us through his word. If we are making a decision that is contrary to the word of God, then it's not the will of God. God will never call you to do something sinful. God will never tell you or speak to you or give you some word that you think you heard that is contrary to his word. Do we have to look for signs or uncover clues or hidden mysteries? You know, driving down the road, the next sign I see is the college I'm going to go to. There was a story of a man who was a farmer his whole life. And he ran into the house one day and he said to his wife, I think I might be called to preach. Because I saw clouds today in the shape of P and C, and I think it means preach Christ. And his wife said, I think it means plant crops. So when we transform and renew our minds, we will learn to think biblically, to pray biblically, and to seek biblical counsel, godly counsel. God speaks through our circumstances. God speaks through our opportunities that he brings into our life. God speaks through wise counselors. But that doesn't tell me who to marry, specifically. Well, let's test this. What does the spirit of the age say? Follow your heart. Don't worry about what anybody else says. Just trust your feelings. You'll know, just like in all the movies. But what does the Bible say? Let's apply. Don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. We know that already. Sexual relations are reserved for marriage only. Honor your father and mother. What do your parents say? Seek the godly counsel of others. What godly people in your life are telling you about the person you may or may not marry? That doesn't tell me what job to take. What does the spirit of the age say? What's the most amount of money I can make in the shortest amount of time? Pursue your passions. Whatever you love, just do it. But Romans 12, 1 and 2 applied. And looking at scripture says, count the cost. It says work hard at whatever you do. Work hard. But we have to count the cost. What is the impact of possibly my career to my relationship with Christ? To my spouse? To my family? So we need to learn to think biblically. What are your gifts? What do wise counselors say? Accept the counsel of others and pursue the will of God. John Murray again says, There is not a moment of life that the will of God does not command, no circumstance that it does not fill with meaning, if we will be responsive to the fullness of his revealed counsel to us. We must bathe ourselves in the word of God in order to know the will of God. So as we close, 
we must always return to the gospel. Without the saving work of Jesus Christ, without justification, there is not a single thing that anyone can do to please God. Working to secure our own salvation is a fool's errand. For by the works of the law, Paul says in Romans 3.25, no flesh will be justified. If you are not trusting Christ as Savior, turn to the one who will give you his righteous robes. But to the believer, if we are resting in the finished work of Christ, be encouraged this morning. Because in Christ, we who were the enemies of God have been saved from his wrath to become worshipers of God. And the greatest joy, the greatest satisfaction that we will find in this life is to live a life pleasing to God as he has revealed in his word. And we have the confidence that the Holy Spirit is doing that work in us. Let me close with what Paul tells the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful that you have given us your spirit. Father, we are grateful that in the life of the believer it has the power to transform us. And Father, we thank you for Paul's words. Father, which is a call to action in each of our lives. Let us renew our minds, Father, by the pursuit of holiness. Father, let us examine our lives in light, Father, of our justification. And Father, I pray that these words, not like the man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets, Father, but that they are written on our hearts to transform us. Thank you for the privilege of giving us your word. In Jesus' name, amen.